Let's open up our binders. We're on 31. We had finished 30. What is effectual calling? Did you have any notes on that one, Erin? Really, because we talked about it for two weeks. I think I must have missed one of the weeks. I think I must have two. All right. 31. 31. All right. Um, okay, go ahead and read number 30, I guess. Me? Yeah, read it for us nice and loud. All right. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Okay. So the effectual call is the act of God by which we are, uh, or the work of God, depends on uh, where you read. Here, and here I think it calls it a work of God. Uh, by which we, our minds are opened, the shackles of sin come off, and rather than being stuck in the slimy pit, we are carried out of it. Our, our uh, need for salvation is shown to us by the Holy Spirit, and God's grace is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So, let's move on to number 31. What benefits do they who are effectually called partake of in this life, they who are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, <coughs> sanctification, and the various benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. The devil, says Thomas Brooks, tempting Bonaventure, suggested to him that he was a reprobate and persuaded him to drink in the pleasures of this life because he was excluded from the future joys with God in heaven. Bonaventure's grace being active, he answered, Not today, Satan. I'm sorry, no. No, not so, Satan. <laughs> if I must not enjoy God after this life, let me enjoy him as much as I can in this life. His grace was active, which makes me think of a like video game. Like, bloop, 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 bloop. Active grace. But it kept him from despairing because it's not just pie in the sky, by and by, after you die, that uh, was promised to us as Christians, but also this life, walking with him, and, well, we are going to talk about the benefits of effectual calling now. So, let's just skip right ahead to the first one, since all of those in that list are then sussed out in their own individual questions. Number 32, the first of those benefits, justification. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So there's a lot there. Uh, I think Romans 5 raises the issue of justification um, probably more clearly than any other in all of Scripture, any other chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the primary uh, side effect or, or result of justification, the primary goal of justification, that we will have peace with Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doctrine, justification, is one of the main things, probably the main thing, separating 
the Reformation stream of faith and the Roman Catholic, going back to the Reformation. This was the big thing that caused the blow-up. Uh, what does it mean to be justified? And this is going to get a little dry here, and if it gets too dry, they're watching a video next door. Um, if I lose any more of you, I might start to feel bad, but the option is always here. Uh, in the Latin the Vulgate, which is the supposed to be the everyday language Bible, right? Vulgate means common, the common language Bible, uh, translated by uh, Jerome. Uh, it has, you know, all this Latin, Ecclesia Latin, which we think of as very old. When it first came out, it was supposed to give everyone kind of access, but then they stuck to it. The way churches do, you know, they hang on to a trend way longer than it's useful, way longer than it's you know, connects with anybody in the culture way longer than the language is even being spoken commonly in this case. Uh, so it went from being a very common language Bible to being kind of a, we're not quite connecting with it. Uh, and what happened here is that the word that they translated for justification, justificare, which starts with an I, because as Indiana Jones reminds us in Latin, J words start with an I. That's where we get our word justification. You can hear it right in there. Almost sounds like a like Bob Marley version of justification. <laughs> justificare. Uh, it, it had a slightly different meaning, at least the way they understood it. Uh, this is R.C. Sproul writing on this topic. Part of the problem of the doctrine of justification and the distinction that goes back between historic Protestantism, Reformation, and Roman Catholic thought has to do with the very simple meaning of the word justification itself. The English word justification is derived from the Latin term justificare, which etymologically, that means words formed from other words, and originally meant literally to make righteous. So that's the meaning, to make righteous. And so the early Latin fathers who studied the Bible out of the Latin Vulgate rather than out of the Greek New Testament developed their doctrine of justification based on their understanding of the legal system of the Roman Empire, which used that same word, justificare, meaning to make righteous. And so, as the church developed that doctrine, the idea of justification came to address the question of how is an unrighteous person, such as a fallen sinner, able to be made righteous. So what happens is they take the idea of justification and turn it into me kind of being slowly made righteous. That we'll actually get to later. It's called sanctification. So they viewed it as being transformative. Whenever they came across the idea of justification, for example, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, they would say, oh, this is talking about us kind of exercising our faith and getting, becoming more and more righteous. Whereas in the original Greek, dikaiao, to justify, is not transformative, it's declarative. So it also could be a kind of court setting, but it wouldn't be something that you had to work toward. Rather, it's the declaration. You are righteous. How does God make us righteous? In justification? By declaring us righteous. By looking at, I mean, I'll just say it, Sean, and saying, this guy is righteous. That's the, the miracle here. Looking at me and saying, Zach is righteous. Yes. Where did, where, what group of writings or whatever was the Greek word used? Was it already in use? 
somewhere like instead of the Latin Vulgate, like how when did that happen? Like why did they go back to that? When did they get back to the original Greek? Yeah, because you were comparing the way Latin, the justification in Latin versus a Greek. With Martin Luther and and kind of uh, even a little before that with the Renaissance, there was in God's providence this return to original source rather than a translation or a translation of a translation. Let's get back, you know, there's just all this learning. And so that was fertile ground for the Reformation to happen. Let's go back because the church seems to be abusing a lot of the power and saying, oh, you want Uncle Edward to get out of purgatory? All right, buy 20 indulgences. Also, you get to sin then, so fun for you. Um, and, and, and so there was this return, and they, instead of reading the Vulgate, which uh, kind of the church had used to justify a lot of its doctrines, said, let's just read the original Bible. And in studying the Greek, uh, you know, men like uh, Erasmus, uh, men like Luther, found this doesn't mean kind of the slow transformation at all. They, they kind of squeezed together two ideas. We're declared righteous. Later we'll talk about how in our walk we become more and more righteous, having already been declared righteous in God's sight. Uh, and when you confuse the two, it can make it very difficult for someone who is outside of Christ to see how can I become a saint? Well, the way I become a saint in one system is I work really hard. I, I get the sacraments as much as possible. I, I maybe even kind of flagellate myself. Uh, you could never be sure. You'd be moving toward this kind of moving target because, as you know, the more you focus on being holy, the more bothered you are by the not holy stuff left in you. That's not to say that in that system people didn't become Christians. Uh, they recognized that faith was central. They recognized uh, that they needed to look to Christ alone. Um, even in that kind of melding of being declared righteous and becoming righteous, but it was much easier in that system for people to put it all on their own shoulders. Well, I haven't yet become righteous. And for Luther to come back and reclaim this and, and others in the, the Reformation tradition and say, no, 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 you're declared righteous. It's one and done. It's, so it's, it, it, once it's done, you, if, if it's done, you will be becoming more righteous, but you don't look at how righteous am I today? Am I in good shape? Do I have a mortal sin on my conscience? Do I need to go to confession and then I'll be okay for the moment? Am I, am I, do I need to make three more spiritual baby steps and then I'm okay? And then I'm good enough? No, you say, you look at Christ and you say, oh, he's perfect. He's good enough. Therefore, I'm good enough. It's a much more freeing uh, way to view the, the scriptures, to understand the gospel, and it does not lend itself nearly so well to abuse by the church because they're not now holding this well hold on we we can see through our lens whether or not you're righteous enough and the solution to get just over the line wouldn't you know it is giving us more of uh, this stuff when the coin in the coffer clings the soul from purgatory springs that was john tetzel uh and I'm not suggesting this is modern-day Roman Catholicism. There's been a Catholic Reformation, a Counter-Reformation, uh, and certainly we still have a, a difference between what justification is, our understanding of it. Uh, there's really hasn't changed as much as you might think it has, but the approach to it has become, I think maybe even just by necessity, to remain appealing alongside uh, the growing... Reformation, Protestant Reformation, 
uh, there is more of an emphasis on God's grace, you receiving, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, so, to start with, if you're defining justification, it's tempting to go with the very cute, just as if I'd never sinned, I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's a good way to remember that it's declarative, that it's instant, but it's not adequate. And when we start talking about imputation, you'll see that it's not. When you're justified, you're way better off than if you never sinned. Adam and Eve had never sinned. They weren't in nearly as good a seat as we are. They were shaky at best. Um, we stand proclaimed, declared by God, righteous. And not this week like Joel Osteen, like I declare it so it's real. Not like this Michael Scott, I declare bankruptcy kind of thing, but like... <laughs> actually by the God who created you and declared that you exist, now declares that you exist as righteous. Uh, it's a great blessing to understand this correctly because it frees you up to do an awful lot of good. Luther said he went from trying to become righteous all the time, scrubbing the floor of the monastery until all of his fellow monks hated him because when you walked past his section, you could see your reflection so it means I have to scrub mine, especially the two guys whose sections were up against his. Oh, really hated the guy. He went from that to, well, I know I've spoken for in Christ. Now I can serve my neighbor. Now I can go and, and help with my sick friend. Now I can go. All of a sudden, he's freed to follow Jesus in meaningful ways. And the ironic part is then he actually becomes righteous much more uh, authentically than if his goal was to become righteous out of self-interest. Now his goal is to love Christ because he's been bought with a price and the result is he does become righteous. It's just, it's counterintuitive, but it, it, of course it is. It's the kingdom of God. I would say though, the best way to start a definition on justification is it is the opposite of condemnation. Flip over to Romans 8. And Romans is the what, the sixth book of the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, yeah. Um, Romans 8, we're going to look at the first verse and then a couple a little later. One of my favorite verses in all the world, in all the scriptures, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If your doctrine of justification, your understanding of justification, of what Jesus did and what happens when we exercise faith, if it doesn't include absolute no condemnation, the, the total comfort right now, if the enemy comes up and says, hey, hey you, you're still wicked, you're, you still hate God, look how much you sin." If your understanding of the gospel isn't built in with that defense that says, no, there's no condemnation for me, so shut up, uh, then it's not complete, and it's really not all that useful then, even if you're trying to slowly become righteous, right? Because you're easily dragged back, you're easily trusting in your own flesh. We need to understand there's no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then skip ahead to verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So they never answer the question here. 
who is there to condemn because it's a rhetorical question and the, the answer is like nobody. So instead he answers a different question. Who justified us? Who intercedes for us? Who is at God's right hand for us? Where once Satan stood between you and God, pointing out all of your flaws, that was his job. What a horrible job. There's probably a lot of stress related in that, unless you like it. Um, I think he liked it. He, he, read how he relishes pointing out, look at Job. He's a fair weather friend. This guy's the worst. Look at Zechariah. He's, look at Joshua. He's filthy. Now he's out of there. And instead, Jesus stands there. And not by way of separating us from God, but he takes us by the hand, brings us right into the very presence of God, at the right hand of God, and says, your son, your daughter. That's justification. What a gift. And it happens all at once. Okay, so let's just take this answer a, a little tiny chunk at a time. It is an act. Let's stop there a second. Um, we talked a little about this earlier the difference between an act of God and a work of God. And that might sound pedantic, but it's super important, and it's actually very comforting when you understand the difference. My uh, illustration was, if I tell Calvin, go clean your room, I'm asking him to do a work. I might say to him, I will say to him later, Calvin, did you clean your room? And he'll go, oh, I got started. And then you go look, and you're like, mm, okay, this looks like my sanctification, right? You got started, you got distracted. Um, and... and it's a work. It's a work in progress. Okay? Give me some time. If I say, Calvin, did you remember to turn your lights off? That's an act. He did it or he didn't. He can't say, oh, I got started. It's a work in progress. No, it's an act. It's not a work. Hoop. Done. Actually, now he says, Alexa, turn off Cal's room. So he could get halfway, I guess, through that statement. But still, it's either done or it's not. It's an act. And so this is not a work. This is not something that can be partway done. That's the difference between the Eustaficari understanding and the Dikayao understanding. This is not something that can be partway done and you go, well, I'm almost justified. I'm almost righteous in God's eyes. No, either you are or you aren't. If you're outside of Christ, you're in Adam and you are very much not righteous in God's eyes. Read Romans 4 to get a description of how not righteous you are in God's eyes. If you're not in Adam but are in Christ by faith, you are. You're righteous in God's eyes. It's, it's done or it's not. So it's an act of God. And that's an important distinction. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people understand it without the work act language. But I think it's important to just talk about it. Like, this is the kind of thing where saying it out loud almost gives it more power in your life. It, it might seem like a nerdy thing to remind yourself of. But when you struggle... Or when you feel like, man, my sanctification, you know, my, my I'm, we're talking in categories we haven't gotten to yet. My Christian life, my walk, it feels like I'm struggling. I'm going off in different directions. I'm not following him closely enough. Remind yourself, my justification is an act. Done. Jesus said, it is finished. It's finished. And rather than giving a saint license then, like, well, if that's done, I can go do whatever I want. It should inspire us to follow him more closely. He, he completed the work on the cross. It is done. It is finished. It is, if we want to keep the legal metaphor, it's like a judge making a pronouncement, whacking the gavel. That's it. In fact, um, yeah, I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago. Serial has a third season. It's not that great. But they're in, a, they're in Cleveland in the courthouse. And a judge whacks the gavel. And the defense attorney says, 
well, hold on, what about, and the judge says, hold, yeah, stop, it's done. If you had stuff to say, you should have said it before I made my verdict. It's over. There's no adding to it, changing it after the fact. This is it. So you're, if you're in Christ, if by faith, by grace through faith, you have been justified, it's, it's, your verdict has already been announced. We're not waiting for judgment day to find out if I'm good enough. I'm not good enough in myself. In Christ, way better than good enough. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, and, of course, that's God's standard, but Jesus somehow even surpasses that perfect standard on our behalf. So it is an act of God. Um, oh, I had written down here, making coffee versus turning off the coffee pot. Is that helpful? Is that better? It's, I like the room one better. But like making coffee is a work, slow, you know, there's different steps to it. Because it seems like you're trying to improve the room. Well, making coffee is improving the person, but okay. <laughs> so it is an act of God's free grace. Let's stop there too. Uh, God's free grace, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only channel through which God's saving grace flows to us. Not through any other way. You can't do enough good works and God will say, well... This is a little unorthodox. I usually grant righteousness through Christ's death and resurrection, but my goodness, you've done a great job with all these filthy rags. Uh, right? Remember, our, our most righteous deeds are filthy rags in God's sight, so you can't amass enough filthy rags. It, it won't even look cute to him. It's, it's an act of rebellion, trying to end run the death and resurrection of Christ and get our own salvation. So it, it must be of God's free grace or it is not at all. Uh, wherein he pardons all our sins. All there is the, the operative word. I, oh, uh, we, we read a uh, prayer of um, confession before we have the Holy Communion, which we're having this morning. Uh, and I got it out. I think it might even be from the Book of Common Prayer. I don't know. It's, it's from some ecumenical source that I found that kind of combined a lot of different things. But I always add a word to it, which is to tell people your sins, all of your sins are forgiven. I think it's easy if when, when we together confess our sins and someone proclaims God's forgiveness, by the way, it's not that person doing it. Uh, it is that person preaching the good news, proclaiming the good news that you're forgiven. It's easy to hear your sins are forgiven and think, oh, yeah, but probably not that one. All your sins are forgiven, even that one. And that one's different for all of us, but that one's forgiven too. So it's very important when we think about justification, not to think only of it as an act that's complete, but an act that's complete, right? It's been completed and it is complete in scope as well. There's not one of your sins that's just, just bad enough to be outside of the reach of God's... I mean, probably that's why so many of the... Saints, not only in the New Testament, but in the early church and throughout the ages, have been such scoundrels before they come to Christ. To, so I can go, oh, God can forgive that. Maybe he can forgive me. Yeah. Um, it would all also imply the ones that you've already committed and the ones that you will commit. I don't know if that was the intent. That certainly is true. Because I think that's another problem that we have. Like, if you, okay, here's the day I was saved, so i got a blank slate now. Yeah, that's a weirdly and Baptist way of thinking of things. Stuff. And, and it's not historically Baptist. Yeah. It is Second Great Awakening, Revivalist, Arminian Baptist, which means a lot of this stuff being based on me making my decision. Right. 
I made my decision, and that saved me. Nothing. Your decisions couldn't save you any more than your good works could. In fact, the way we talk about it, our decision is filed under good works. That's the one good work that can save you? No, no, no. You were saved because you were effectually called. Your, your heart and mind were unshackled. God reached down into the slimy pit and pulled you out. You didn't climb up and go, <coughs> I want in too. And so it's easy, I think, when, it, when it's on my decision to go, okay, after the point where I made that decision, I should now be good enough. Yeah, and I should be perfect, and if I mess up, then... First John 1, 8 and 9 reminds us that's never the case, right? If anyone says he is without sin... The truth is not in him. He deceives himself. Only the other way around. Uh, and then he gives us instructions. When you do sin, confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive them. So, yeah, it's an ongoing uh, offer. I, I, and, yeah, so, so you have to think in terms of God being outside time that, that justification covers even my future sins. And again, it's easy to say, to side with those who debated against Luther and say, if that's our view of things, everyone's just going to live whatever you know, life they want. They don't care. If you take away this fear that they might not make the cut, why would people live lives that glorify God? And the answer is because they're born again. Because they're new creations, they want to glorify God. They know they'll fall. They know they'll sin. But they know they have an advocate who sits at God's right hand. That's incredible stuff. Uh, he, by the way, I'm not super crazy about the word pardon anymore uh, because I think it, the semantic domain has, has shrunk. I hear pardon and I think, if, in a legal sense, I hear pardon and I think like I bumped into somebody. I don't say, oh, nobody's, I don't hear it say, oh, say pardon. But um, you hear pardon and you think, you know, the president or the governor pardoned this person. That doesn't mean they were declared not guilty. It means they're guilty, but forget the punishment. And that's not what happens in Christ. It's not that there was no punishment. There was a punishment. It just wasn't meted out on us. So the, the pardon is not simply a declarative thing, a legal fiction. It's a standing in for us and enduring the cross. So would you say I w yeah, I don't, know. I don't know that there is a perfect word here that's going to encapsulate all of what we're going to suss out about Christ's death and how it's imputed to us. I guess pardon is as good as anything as long as we put in a little caveat. Um, it's not that no payment has been made. Like, right, if somebody, it, it's like that old story of, uh, oh, good grief, who was way back old-timey governor of New York? Was, there, was Rockefeller a governor or, or a uh, uh, mayor of New York City? Uh, one of these guys, a name you'd know. Uh, obviously, I didn't write this one down. He would occasionally he, he would stand, go into the night court. Doo -doo, doo -doo -doo -doo, and he would uh, sit on the bench. Night court? 90s TV? Nobody? Okay. John Larroquette? Sean? Uh, he would sit on the bench. He'd hear cases just to keep fresh. And then he would sometimes, if something just moved his heart like there was some desperate person who did some desperate thing because it was New York in the 20s he would say you're guilty you owe $500 or whatever the charge and he would pull out his his wallet and he would pay the fine right there which is a wonderful illustration of what God does for us because he's perfectly righteous he can't just say forget what you did but he can pay the debt on our behalf and sometimes 
he would say, everyone in this courtroom right now is fined 25 cents for living in a city where a woman feels like she has to steal bread to survive and feed her kids, and then that would go into paying the fine as well. Uh, but that doesn't work with theologically, so forget that. So he pardons all of our sins, here's my favorite part, and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Accepts us. And that, the, the enemy's only real move right now is to try to convince you God doesn't accept you. That is, if you trace back any temptation, any despair, any spiritual attack, I guarantee at least nine times out of ten, at the core of that is this one lie. He doesn't accept you. Why? Well, there might be any different number of uh, reasonings that, that we would be tempted to hold on to, but at the core of it, God doesn't accept you. The scriptures tell us he does. He accepts us as righteous in his sight. As righteous in his sight. Ephesians chapter 1. Somebody read. I've been talking a lot. Somebody flip over to Ephesians chapter 1 and read verses 3 through 6 for us nice and loud. Okay. Uh, praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he proceeds or he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in one he loves. So it sounds like God, the Father, is pretty excited as well about our being justified. It brings him joy. He, he, he loves it. And, and that may be why, what my beef is with the pardoned language based on our current under use of the word. Because if the governor pardons a felon in the 11th hour, uh, the judge might hate the fact. The judge might say, wait a minute, I declared that person guilty after hearing the evidence and I put that, that sentence on that person and justly they should have it. That's not the case with us. The judge loves that we have been forgiven of our sins, that someone else has paid the debt, and that we are now uh, in him spoken for. And blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, you know, now we can say, I am a friend of God. That is such a bold claim. And yet, I don't know what better evidence we could have than the cross and the empty tomb and Jesus saying, uh, now I don't call you uh, by these formal titles anymore, but I call you friends. Uh, as righteous, this is where we get to imputation. Write that down in your notes. And if you're driving, listening to this on the internet, just take out your phone and type it. I'm kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> imputation. I wish didn't sound so nerdy and daunting and uh, dry. Imputation. imputation. What does it mean, anybody? What does it impute? Put something in. Or to infuse. To kind of infuse, to inject. Like, remember um, on, on TV there was, for a while there, an infomercial for this, like, syringe deal you could get, and you could, like, stab, like, your boneless chicken breast and like squirt like butter and garlic into it or cheese or something like 
in infusing, in, in, injecting into, putting into. That's imputing. Uh, or here's a very uh, dry definition. A transfer of benefit or harm from one individual to another. In theology, imputation may be used negatively to refer to the transfer of the sin and guilt of Adam to the rest of mankind. So Adam's guilt is imputed into us as his offspring because he was our federal head. We talked about that at some length. Or positively, imputation refers to the righteousness of Christ being transferred to those who believe on him for salvation. We could also use it to talk about our sins being imputed to Christ. Christ, who was, out, was without sin, took on so much sin, he became sin for us. He became what needed to be punished. He became the curse. And so it's not a situation where I walk next to Jesus until he kind of rubs off on me. Now, that happens in our sanctification, but that's not the grounds for our to say, okay, I, I'm saved. No, all at once, an act of God, his righteousness is imputed to us legally so that God looks at us. And it, it's like when Moses came down the mountain and you could barely look at his face, he was shining. God looks at us and he says, whoa, righteousness of Jesus. Clearly, you're righteous. God, Christ's righteousness is so uh, infinite that he, it can be imputed to everyone who believes at 100% capacity. You are now righteous in God's sight. And that imputation then has uh, practical effects as well as we become more and more like Jesus because his righteousness dwells in us. So yeah, we're understood as righteous. We're accepted as righteous in his sight. That's also important because whose opinion matters in a courtroom? The judge, right? Or I mean, we're, we're talking about a non-jury trial here. The, the judge... Like, you could convince the bailiff, you could convince the stenographer, you could convince all the reporters and the guy sketching the scene, and they could all be like, holy cow, this guy is definitely innocent. But if the judge says, no, I'm not, I've fallen for it, it's no good. In his sight. And that's comforting, but it's also a reminder to us not to become like the Pharisees, whose whole like gig was, I am going to convince everyone around me that I'm very righteous. I am going, in fact, that, I think this is still very popular in all religious circles and non-religious for that matter, just what righteousness looks like looks different. Um, you know, social media has made this a sport. I, I have to, did I even read my Bible if I didn't take a thoughtful looking Instagram picture and post it for everyone to see? Looking righteous is a, something people love, but it doesn't matter. What matters is what God sees when he looks at us. And if Christ's righteousness has been imputed into us, he sees Christ's righteousness. If not, he sees right through our pretense of righteousness. It doesn't fool him for a bill a second. In fact, he doesn't even see our self-righteousness as righteousness, but as more sin that's separating us from him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <coughs> so imputation is such a strong thing that it makes us not just righteous, but we become the righteousness of God because Jesus became sin. That It's so strong that it, it, it like almost displaces what was inside of us and 
and something else is now the reality, both in Christ and in us. By the way, those who would say uh, they don't believe in original sin, and there are a few kind of strains of Christianity that would say that, again with the strains, there are a few traditions that would, would say that. Um, they often would say it's because it's unfair, right? How could one person's sin be applied to someone else? And you say, well, if that can't happen, you can't be saved. Because if your sin can't be applied to Jesus, you're dead in your sins and you're hopeless. If your sin can be applied to Jesus, then one person's sin can be applied to someone else and God is still righteous and, and uh, not fair, but just. Uh, in gospel justification, God treats a sinner as if he were a just man or woman. And then finally, only for the righteousness of Christ. The Oh, is it? What time is it? Is that right? Is it 1030? The righteousness of God and righteousness of Christ are not the same. Only for the righteousness of Christ reminds us that God's righteousness is inherent in him. It is the yardstick. It is a divine attribute, a divine perfection. Christ, because he is God the Son, has that. But the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us is a result of his perfect obedience, having been uh, incarnated and, and walked amongst us, tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. So he submitted to the whole law of God under which he was born, and his perfect righteousness in doing that uh, is the righteousness that is imputed to us, and it is received by faith alone. Um, in fact, we will pick up there next time because there's a little bit to talk about uh, sola fide, faith alone. Uh, and yeah, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for some time together. Uh, we do pray for those who uh, aren't here with us, and we pray for those also who are joining Jonathan uh, in his class, uh, looking at some difficult issues and how the church can address them and respond to them. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all these things and we would be uh, just made that much more like your son, Jesus. But we thank you, God, that our salvation is not hinged on us slowly shuffling our way toward you until we are good enough, but that it is completely hanging on the cross and the empty tomb, that, that our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ so that we could be exalted to your right hand with Christ, raised from the death of sin with Christ. What good news and Lord, we pray that uh, we would live our lives in light of that. We would not be tempted to see ourselves as rejected by you, but we would remember that we are accepted as righteous in your sight. In your holy name we pray. Amen.